Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Defense Deconstructed on the CGAI Podcast Network. I'm your host for this episode and CGAI's Ottawa Operations Manager, Charlotte Duvin-Antoine. On today's show, which we recorded on June 19th, 2023, you'll hear a conversation between the Commander of the Canadian Army, Lieutenant General Jocelyn Paul, and myself about culture change and reconstitution in the Canadian Army. This episode is a part of a webinar series on culture change and reconstitution in the Canadian Armed Forces, which was made possible thanks to the Department of National Defense's MINDS program and CGAI's strategic sponsors, Lockheed Martin Canada, General Dynamics, and Urbic Shipbuilding. But before we get to the episode, you'll hear a conversation between CGEI's president, Dave Perry, and our 2023-2024 Women in Defense and Security Fellow, Kate Todd, about the week in defense news. Enjoy the episode. Before we get to the rest of the show, uh, we're happy to welcome back Kate Todd for a What's in the News segment. Kate, what are you tracking for this episode? So three new developments have been affecting Canada's defense and security. Uh, the first is that Russia and China recently conducted a joint naval patrol near the Alaskan coast, which has interesting implications for our Arctic security. Uh, the second is that two more of Canada's military assets, one Royal Canadian Navy asset and one Royal Canadian Air Force asset have been damaged. Uh, and the third is the massive budget cut uh, that Anita Anand requested uh, by October 2nd, where She's tasked cabinet ministers to find $15.4 billion in savings. So those are the three that I'd like to chat about with you this week. So let's start with the, the Russian and Chinese naval patrols. What do you think is significant there? Just to catch everybody up, in early August, there were 11 Russian and Chinese naval ships that conducted what Alaskan Senator Dan Sullivan called unprecedented joint patrols near Alaska's Aleutian Islands. And this is an island chain just southwest of the mainland. So although the ships never entered US territorial waters, the US deployed four naval destroyers and one P-8 Poseidon aircraft to shadow them. So this isn't really an un unprecedented, unprecedented event. There have been Russian and Chinese exercises that are similar that have taken place in previous years, but it does impact Canada's position on its Arctic defense and on uh, its continental defense, because this seems to be a direct well, threat to Canada, given the proximity and capabilities of these ships and the lack of respect that both countries show for the rules-based international order. Beyond just Canada, um, so a couple things here. Um, there's language in the Indo-Pacific strategy about the North Pacific being the gateway uh, to the Arctic, which uh, when that was released didn't necessarily uh, make intuitive sense to me. But I think this is sort of what um, the strategy was getting at, that that, that part of the um, northern waters in the Pacific Ocean bridging into the Arctic is one where there's been um, some interesting developments uh, that we're concerned about, of which uh, this is an example. Um, also something that uh, Japanese officials um, are pretty cautious and concerned about, given uh, um, their geography and their proximity to other uh, joint Chinese and Russian uh, activities. Um, so that's interesting. Yeah, demonstrations like this are examples of Russia and China's closer cooperation in the Arctic. And this has sort of been a concern for allies for a few years now. But uh, back earlier this spring, there was another agreement signed by Russia and China uh, about Coast Guard cooperation. So I think that there are going to be progressively more and more of these demonstrations happening in the region. So aside from the patrol, you also mentioned that there had been some uh, issues involving Canadian military assets recently. What's happened there? Yeah, so the first is that last week it was reported that HMCS Winnipeg, one of Canada's 12 Halifax-class frigates, had a damaged propeller but also structural cracks and corrosion that were going to limit the operation of the ship and require it to be in dry dock for about a year for repairs. So this means that... Uh, on the West Coast, there's now going to be five instead of six operational frigates and could have implications for their ability to deploy these ships in new operations like Op Horizon. So that's uh, with the ship, but uh, you mentioned there's an issue with uh, one of our aircraft as well. Yeah, so another asset that was damaged was a CC-130H Hercules transport aircraft. So it was parked at Comox, which is a air 
Force Base uh, on Vancouver Island, and a WestJet plane, of all things, that was bound for Edmonton clipped the Hercules uh, when it was taxiing out for departure. So there weren't any injuries, but the damage hasn't been assessed yet. And the Hercules is one of only two search and rescue fixed wing aircraft that are stationed at the base. So it's going to be interesting to see how this affects uh, the Royal Canadian Air Force's search and rescue capabilities uh, going forward on the West Coast. I think this is something to track. I'm not sure exactly what happened uh, my, in particular on, with the frigates um, those frigates are getting pretty old or they are or are hitting exceeding 30 years of age right now uh, and they were designed for about 25 years of, of actual operational life uh, from what I understand um, less familiar with the issue with the aircraft but I think the, that's a bit of an indicator um, with HMCS Winnipeg potentially of what to, to look for in, in the future, particularly the concern about structural issues with the actual hull of the ship. Um, I know there's a lot of concern uh, about the amount of maintenance it's taking each time one of those ships goes through refits. Um, it's taking longer and taking more money than anticipated um, to get them uh, able to actually deploy the way we want them to. Uh, and I think that's going to be uh, something I'll come back to in a minute or two after we talk about uh, your next story, uh, which is the proposed budget cuts that were announced in the March 2023 budget. But recently there was a reporting on a letter that came out from the new president of the Treasury Board. Yeah, so Minister Anand put out a letter ordering cabinet ministers to come up with $15.4 billion of savings by October 2nd. So that's no small feat. And a spokesperson for Anand said that the government isn't expecting that this will include any cuts to public service jobs and said that this is about ensuring funds are better allocated to government priorities. Um, but as the largest department in the federal government, the Department of Defense's budget accounts for about 7.7% of Canada's total budget. So can be expected that a lot of the savings will be found there. So Dave, as one of Canada's top experts on defense spending and procurement, what are your takeaways from the announcement? Well, I think uh, if the government's serious about this, uh, and I think we're at the point of I'm not yet being sure whether or not they are serious about it, there was a previous effort at fiscal restraint that didn't really amount to much and they just kind of folded in some things that happened anyway uh, and called that fiscal savings during a, a previous effort at this about a year ago. But if they are serious about this, um, the impact of D&D is going to be um, fairly significant. Um, you expressed how big the budget is as the size of the total budget. I think the better way to situate and that for this type of uh, a discussion is how much of uh, program spending and how much of the actual eligible review base they're targeting. Uh, and it's a lot higher than, than about 8%. Uh, there's a bunch of different budget ca categories that the government's looking to save money in as part of this reduction. And, and in each one of them, D&D ranges between uh, one fifth and one quarter of all government spending. On my math, if you go through all that, what DND is looking at is something at in the neighborhood of a billion dollars, um, depending on how much of an exemption there are to different categories. And there'd be basically two big buckets of it. One and the biggest chunk of this is an effort to reduce spending on professional service contracts. Um, defense spends by far the largest amount of money on that in government, about $5 billion. Uh, so depending on the exact portion, maybe looking at something like 750 million in that neighborhood worth of reductions. And then beyond that, there's uh, an effort to identify savings in the overall operating pot of the defense budget. So that's basically the remaining portion of operations and maintenance funds uh, when you filter out um, spending on other items. The real key for this, I think, is that twofold. One, a decade ago, we went through a series of different uh, reduction measures that impacted D&D all between 2010-2015. There's a strategic review, a pre-programmed exercise um, that rolled into a cost-saving exercise. There's the deficit reduction uh, action plan under the Harper government after the 2008 financial crisis. And then the third thing after that, defense engaged in what was called um, defense renewal, which was picking up on an effort of the basically um, dematerialized uh, effort at uh, transformation that uh, former General uh, Andrew Leslie led. All three of those exercises went in and spent some serious time trying to look at efficiencies in the D&D budget uh, to varying degrees of, of success. The renewal effort didn't amount to all that much as far as I could tell. But the department spent half a decade looking at efficiencies, trimming fat, et cetera, not all that long ago. 
So while the budget's grown, I don't know that there's all that much fat left to trim at this point. And the other thing is that when you get through and you start looking at how much of the departmental budget is actually adjustable, while they have a really big budget overall, when you start um, setting aside the things that aren't part of this review base, capital spending, spending on personnel, it's, and then within the remaining amount, which is largely the operations and maintenance pot of money, when you start cracking that open, there's a whole bunch of that money that's already committed for things that you can't adjust very easily. So things like healthcare for military members, that's provided on a service contract. But beyond that, there's a lot of long-term contracts for things like base support or uh, in-service support for various fleets um, where a lot of money is committed. So they're looking for a give or take a billion dollars within a pot that's probably between two and four billion, probably closer to the two billion range of that in terms of what it can actually be easily adjustable in year. Yeah, so it seems like that'll be quite a difficult exercise because I know in recent months there's been reports about CAF members being deployed in Poland and having to buy their own food or soldiers in Latvia buying their own protective equipment already, as well as complaints about military members having their housing benefits gradually phased out uh, despite soaring costs of living. So as the CAF faces their staffing crisis, uh, cutting more from the already lean budget seems like it'll be an uphill battle. Yeah, and I think to tie the stories that you flagged together, um, the frigates, because they are older, need more money for maintenance. Uh, and it's the maintenance pot of money that's at risk as part of this exercise. I mean, there's with a, if there's a serious effort to try and find close to a billion dollars worth of spending, they're going to be looking uh, in every nook and cranny. Um, that's the reason why, as an example, um, during the Deficit Reduction Action Plan, the Conservatives cut um, a whole bunch of even small programs entirely, things like the then Security and Defense Forum, which is the academic program providing funding to um, universities, think tanks like us. Um, uh, its successor, the Mines Program, is likely to be um, under heavy review as part of this, um, because even though it's only a few million dollars, um, they're going to be looking for savings wherever they can. Uh, and it's going to be extremely difficult to put this through without any impact on operational capability, in my opinion. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see how this affects potential new programs or assets that are planning uh, to be purchased, um, like the proposed submarine project, uh, because I know that's been talked about, especially in defense circles for the past couple of years, uh, quite seriously. But if they are looking to cut about a billion dollars of spending, I doubt that we're going to be seeing um, the uh, announcements about submarines that people have been hoping for. We'll see. So far, they're saying that, that this won't affect um, capital funding um, strictly, but in, in part because of overall personnel shortages at defense. Um, and that's another piece of backdrop to, to this discussion. Across government, staffing has gone up considerably, 30, 40 percent um, in various different departments. But in D&D, &D, it's actually shrunk. Um, and so the increase in service contracting, I think, is a, is you can juxtapose it in a different way because it's not being additive to wider personnel growth. Uh, in a lot of cases, they've used spending on contracts to uh, provide direct support to things like the capital program. So engineering studies, um, assistance uh, with writing project documentation, all those kinds of things. National Defense has increasingly done that using service contracts um, to help expedite its capital program. So this would be less about having the actual funding to pay for um, new submarines removed, but this could well have an impact on D&D's ability to actually move that project forward to the point where it would need the money for the capital asset. Yeah, it'll be an interesting thing to watch over the next couple of months. And uh, I guess by October 2nd, we'll have another update. We'll have to revisit it then. Kate, thanks again for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. This episode of Defense Deconstructed is brought to you by Irving Shipbuilding. Canada's national shipbuilder is currently hiring. For more information on the many jobs and opportunities currently available, please visit www.shipsforcanada.ca slash careers. So now it is my pleasure to have a General Paul join us today to give us a perspective on the Army's aspect of CAF reconstitution and culture change as we're uh, having those discussions today. And with the Army, we have a specific 
like a more particular side of the story as uh, we're thinking about uh, modernization of the service in light of what is happening in Ukraine and how uh, the service is adapting. So General Paul, uh, bienvenue, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, we'll get started um, talking about attrition. So we know that about the military is about 16,000 people short. But I was wondering, what is the state of things within the army, both qu quantitatively in terms of number of people that, that you're looking to, to replenish, but also in terms of the occupations that, that you're missing and you're prioritizing in terms of recruitment? Yeah. Uh, good morning, everybody. Bon matin à tous. Donc, merci pour l'invitation. Uh, C'est fort apprécié. Uh, when it comes down to, to the number, obviously, they are uh, fluctuating on a daily basis. And uh, from my strategic perch, you know, at Army HQ, I'm not uh, necessarily tracking it uh, daily, obviously. My J1 shop, you know, is looking after it. But uh, to, to just to give you a, an idea of the magnitude, uh, I'd, I'd offer to you that we're about 7,000 people short right now in the Army. And uh, so it's more than 2,000 regular uh, member and, uh, and about uh, 5,000, you know, uh, reservists. And, and when I'm talking about shortages of people here, I'm, I'm, I'm specifically focusing on, on train effective strength, uh, what we call TES, uh, read, you know, uh, soldiers that are qualified, uh, soldiers that we can employ, you know, on domestic or expeditionary operation. And uh, regarding uh, the, the Rangers, um, the numbers are quite good, actually. Uh, we're, we're around 5,000 Ranger. So um, I would say the, the what's going on out there uh, is kind of comforting for me. Uh, I don't need to worry too much about uh, the number of uh, Ranger that we have on the establishment. But, but my focus right now is, is really you know, on, on the first reserve and, and on the regular force. Because as, as we all know, uh, our nation, our country has made a commitment vis-a-vis, uh, -vis, you know, uh, Latvia, vis-a-vis -vis NATO. Uh, so Canada in, in September of uh, 2024 is going to be leading the, the multinational brigade in Latvia. And it's going to be a significant uh, number of people that, that we're going to have to be leading out there, Canadians, but also, you know, allies from different nations. So that, that, that's why, you know, uh, we're paying so much attention right now regarding what's going on in terms of recruiting, in terms of retention. Uh, we want to ensure, you know, that we are going to be able to force generate all of these subunits and units that will be required so that we can deliver on our mandate. So to jump on that point, uh of retention, what are your priorities uh, on this point, uh, considering that we know that most of what is missing for the military right now is is quite is the middle uh, of, mm -hmm. of most. Yeah, the thing is, there's a lot of hands in the dough, <clears throat> if I can mention that. Uh, first of, you know, as the army commander, I do some, uh, I do have some of the levers, but not them all. Uh, for instance, you know, pe people sometimes don't realize that the Department of National Defense uh, cannot decide on its own, you know, to give a, a pay rise, for instance, you know, there's this discussion with Treasury Board and so on and so forth. Uh, I guess, you know, we are not a, a free electron. Uh, we are basically part of the uh, federal government constellation. So uh, when it comes down to retention, you know, I can do my share, uh, but chief military personnel also has a key role to play as this is the primary interface between, you know, the Department of National Defense, the Canadian Armed Forces, and Treasury Board. But, but within my own authority as the Army Commander, uh, obviously, we do pay a lot of attention regarding the middle-level, you know, management. The, the middle-level management are these men and women who are basically delivering the training. You know, when you, uh, you're you running uh, an infantry DP1 courses, you know, you need to have a bunch of surgeons, you need to have a bunch of warrant, you're going to have one or two officers on the course. But for the most part, uh, the training is delivered by these uh, mid-level people. And, and this is why they are so crucial to us. And, and also, this is the pool of people that we are tapping into. 
for, for the promotion. So if you want to have majors and light colonels, if you want to have warrant officers and, and master warrant officers and chief warrant officers, you need to have you know, a healthy uh, mid-level type of leadership. And uh, right now, uh, within the subunit, the unit, the formation, and so on and so forth, uh, we are reminding everybody of the importance of, of pacing ourselves. You know, we, we are in the business, uh, I would say, of, of, of delivering a marathon, not a race. When I'm looking at, uh, at Latvia, I'm looking at what's going on right now in Ukraine. I'm looking at these authoritarian regimes uh, that are challenging the international rule-based order everywhere. Um, I think we are in, in that situation at the geostrategic level for probably the next 10, 15 years. And actually, when I'm having a discussion with European colleagues uh, during NATO meetings and, or bilateral meetings, this is the one thing that I keep hearing all the time. 10, 15 years of having an extremely difficult Russia to cope with. So th therefore, the, the current leadership of, of the army, but also the current leadership of the Canadian Armed Forces need to ensure that we are gonna be able to sustain on the long run, these different international commitments that we are taking. So uh, what is it that we do at the tactical level with all of that? First of all, you know, as I was taking over the army uh, a year ago, uh, I reminded ourselves that, you know, we need to ensure that we deliver the right type of training at the right time. Uh, and, and I spent a few years in the training system of the army. I was the commander of the Canadian Maneuver Training Center. And um, we need to ensure that we are not overtraining. If you overtrain, if you keep adding you know, new material to your courses all the time and you don't do any subtraction, the whole thing translates into more time away from home. So you have captains, you have sergeant, master corporals who are then away from their family, away from their home garrison. They are spending more and more time in, in Gagetown, uh, in, in Wainwright. So we, we need to have a serious look into this. We need to ensure that we do just-in-time delivery, if I can say so. And uh, the commander of CAT-TC, uh, the Army Doctrine and Training Center, is, is looking into this right now. Uh, we need also to value other type of training. Uh, what I mean by that is what I like to refer as, as experiential learning. We human beings do learn a lot by osmosis, just by putting your hands on something. You, you don't need to deliver formal training for everything. And, and I'll be honest with you, uh, when I was a younger man going uh, through my, my officer training in Gagetown, especially phase three, which is quite demanding, uh, after three days of, of being deprived, you know, from, from any sleep, you don't learn, you don't learn much. I mean, you're, you're, you're basically falling asleep everywhere. So wh where am I going and heading with that is, is most of the, the things that I've learned, but, but also retain is are the things that you're learning, you know, as you're training with your, your platoon, your company, your battalion, the mentorship, you know, uh, the mentorship you're receiving in the unit lines with, you know, your company sergeant major, your sergeant. When you're a lieutenant, you listen to your warrant officer. And, and you know, that, that, that learning by osmosis, it's almost like an apprenticeship, you know? Is, is critical, and, and I kind of feel like we, we've, we've always overvalued, you know, undervalued, I shall say, you know, the, the, the importance of that type of learning. So, yeah, we're trying to uh, reduce the length of uh, a lot of our courses. And uh, regarding collective training, uh, we have made some, uh, some important decision recently. Uh, for instance, uh, when it comes down to Maple Resolve, the collective training event where we do confer our uh, bow group about to be put you know on, on deployment uh, that that training has been ongoing in in Wainwright Alberta now for the last 15 years 
that some of that training will be exported into Europe. When you go to Latvia on a six month tour, you do train a lot with the Latvian soldiers, but also within you know, the NATO bound group and so on and so forth. So we've decided that we will be conducting a little less train, collective training in Canada so that the people can be with their family a little bit longer. We've also decided that instead of going, you know, de facto to win, right, we would start again doing some collective training in Valcartier, in Petawawa, in Gagetown, like we have done, uh, most of us, you know, for most of our career. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're suddenly looking into uh, individual and collective training in order to pace ourselves. But, but the, other, the other decisions that have been made as well is when it comes down to up-tempo or training tempo is just do what's required. What I mean by that is, uh, you know, there, there's a few tasks. Um, many of them are ceremonial in nature that we've decided, you know, to reduce uh, the tempo. Uh, for instance, you know, in, in the NCR in Ottawa this summer, uh, we will have, you know, the, the Governor General Foot Guard Dan, who's going to be doing, you know, public event. But you won't see uh, the 100 men and women guard doing the parade, you know, on, on the hill. So we had to make some, some difficult and challenging decision. And uh, we're, we're trying to focus, you know, on, on the essential. Because at the end of the day, what we would like to build for our people is uh, a system where there's a little more predictability. If you know where you are heading and going two, three years down the road, you can have your, your engagement obviously with your loved one, the family can get ready. And if you are a reservist and, and you know there is a deployment opportunity into Latvia two years down the road, then you can organize you know, your, your student schedule or you can organize your professional schedule so that you can participate into you know, uh, that deployment. So uh, those are a few examples of what is it that we are trying to implement right now so that we can help ourselves you know, with, with the tempo. And to go a little bit beyond that, uh, because your answer like focused very much on retention as I asked you, but do, are you looking for um, overarching program in terms that could help with recruitment today because helping with retention is one thing but you're still as you said 7,000 people short uh, yeah. are you implementing or working with chief military personnel to put in place a program that that could help recruitment such as the naval experience mm -hmm. program but army style yeah so um, all of us the services are are watching closely what's going on with the Royal Canadian Navy and, and obviously there's gonna be a few interesting lessons learned out there. Uh, what we did inside the army a year ago is we had, you know, hub paradigm. And basically hub paradigm was, uh, the concept was, we're gonna use infantry battalions to train recruits. So instead of going to Saint-Jean for your 10 weeks and then go to Valcartier, for instance, you know, at the, at the school up there to, to, to learn your skills as an infantryman or a cavalry uh, member, um, you know, we, we had made um, the decision to basically deliver the whole training within the unit lines. Uh, so we had three infantry battalions who were ready to deliver that type of training uh, with the three large division. But um, unfortunately, the, the recruits, you know, were not there. So, uh, but, but that, that approach of paradigm is something that, that has been designed. It is something that we have on the shelf that we will be uh, willing and ready to use if we do have, you know, a surge of, of recruits. Um, for the regular force, as, as most of our colleagues know here, uh, the responsibility for attraction for recruiting belongs to a chief military uh, personnel and uh, the Canadian Force Recruiting Group. And uh, we are obviously looking into different ways where we can make the system more agile, more nimble, uh, for instance, when it comes down to my task as an army commander, uh, all my tasks uh, in terms of recruitings are filled. Uh, my people have been posted where they need to be posted. Uh, same thing with Saint-Jean, you know, uh, all the army positions uh, that should be uh, fulfilled, you know, by army people in Saint-Jean are. 
So this is what I can do within my, my own authorities. Um, and, and obviously, you know, the army will always be ready uh, to enable a surge of recruits if uh, the, that surge materializes. And, and we sincerely hope, you know, that it will. Uh, however, as a society, we, we need to be cognizant of uh, some, uh, some of our uh, reality. You know, the, the calf is not living, you know, in, in a vacuum. Uh, let me offer to you, without getting into uh, too much into the, the statistics and the data, uh, we, we need to recognize, you know, that the demographic nature of our country is evolving, it's changing. Uh, there's many regions, you know, of the country where the population is, is aging. Um, there's less youth uh, available because we've made, you know, some, some family decisions. Uh, it, you know, the, the youth who were not conceived 20 years ago cannot, you know, go to the recruiting center. Um, so uh, there's labor shortages everywhere. I mean, just, uh, you know, we all listen to the news, right? We're, we're short of everything in this country, uh, you know, nurses, doctors, and, and so on and so forth. So there's a demographic reality that, that we need to acknowledge. You know, I, I like to see us, uh, the CAF, the Canadian Armed Forces, but also the Army as competing with an extremely, you know, uh, challenging and demanding, uh, you know, labor market. Um, if you want to attract uh, a young woman and, and, and invite her to join the CAF, you know, it's got to be interesting. It's going to be appealing because that young lady can certainly do other things. She is solicited in, in so many type of, of different type of industry. So we need to have... Um, a compelling case, and and this is where uh, this is why also uh, culture is so important to us. Um, so everything that has to do with positive and inclusive leadership is central. If you do not lead and treat properly your people, they will be voting with their feet, because there's plenty of economic opportunities out there. So this is the space where we need to do better. This is why, you know, as an institution, we've decided to uh, take the bull by the horn when it comes down to uh, sexual misconduct. And, and this, is why, this is why every single time, you know, uh, the leadership uh, is made aware of, you know, leadership issues of different nature, different type, uh, you know, we're quite quick to react to it just to ensure, you know, that, that the people behave properly. Uh, you got to be a positive, you got to be an inclusive leader, you got to treat people with respect. And, uh, and I would offer to you that the vast majority of our people do exactly that. And uh, we need to care about these young Canadians, because again, you know, there's not that many available out there. And, and also, uh, we do our best to try to attract also uh, many new Canadians, uh, people who just arrived in Canada a few years ago. But again, you know, we have to be uh, cognizant of another reality. Uh, many people immigrating, you know, to Canada are economic immigrants. They come to our country and they already have a landed job. So again, we need to, to manage our level of expectation here. Uh, but, uh, you know, to be an open organization, uh, to lead, you know, in an inclusive way, in an inclusive manner, um, will certainly help us on the long run here. And you've done that segue into culture for me. So I, I, I will stick to that um, because most of the conversation that we have been having around culture change has been very wide NDHQ uh, National Defense Headquarters centric. But mm. I wanted to hear a little bit further into your the Army perspective <laughs> on that issue. How are you approaching this issue of culture uh, more into you know, how does that align with your mission statements and, and the other priorities that you have, especially operationally today? Yeah. You know, uh, I have a master's degree in anthropology, so I, I like to believe that I, I understand culture a little bit. Uh, you know, human beings are, are cultural animal, right? And uh, culture has so many uh, sub-components. Uh, and uh, there are so many different human groups, you know, who have their own culture and their subcultures and so on and so forth. So we can talk about culture for hours. 
But uh, when it comes down to uh, the army's culture, uh, the strength of the army is basically built around the group. It's the section, it's the platoon, it is the company, it is the battalion. We need to do everything we can to ensure that you know, we are as cohesive as possible. And, and in order to be cohesive, you don't need to force pe people into it. I would offer to you a single culture or a single you know, definition of what the culture should be. You need to have an open culture where the differences are going to be valued, where you know, uh, the different perspectives are going to be great. If in, in a unit you have a CEO and a chief warrant officer, and if, if they are always enforcing or cracking the whip on a specific message, the troops, the mid-level leadership will not be inclined to offer a different perspective. And often the solution is in that zone. You know, the, the things that as a leader you have not considered, the things that you may not have discussed with your chief when you're having a one-on-one -on -one discussion, but, but maybe the solution is with that sergeant. Maybe the solution is with that captain. And so you, you, you need to have an open mind and accept that there's some fantastic ideas that are basically bottom up. And uh, actually, I, I saw some of it in action in, in Wainwright, where I was about three weeks ago. So we've decided to uh, you know, uh, see the little bit of money. And uh, we bought a little bit of equipment. We bought you know, a little bit of service. And, and we ended up bottom up um, digitizing, you know, digitizing a bowel group. Uh, so, and, and what, I, what I mean here is that instead of having a, an Ottawa based top down solution imposed on our people, we've enabled them with resources and they have shown us, you know, uh, some magic. Um, so, bottom up approach, extremely important. And, and if I may touch another topic related to culture, uh, we are a diverse nation, a diverse country. And when I was in, in Kandahar as a battle group commander many years ago, uh, my, my, my cultural advisor was a, an Afghan born Canadian citizen. And uh, he was providing us with all of these critical cultural nugget, the body language of the Pashtu community, the, the untold, you know, the, the thing that the people won't be verbalizing necessarily, but the things that do matter. I guess wh where I'm going with all of that is th the Canadian diversity is truly a force multiplier. So as we are all wearing you know, that military uniform with that Canadian flag. You need to, you need to develop that, that cohesive army culture, but not at the detriment of all the other culture who are truly a force enabler, a force multiplier. Um, and uh, different perspective, you know, from a gender perspective, uh, women, you know, uh, are, are always bringing a totally different perspective to the table. Not totally different, I would say. Maybe it's too strong of a word, but they can a word. You know, they can bring a different perspective. And uh, so, to let the people speak their mind uh, does make a big difference. Obviously, when you are under fire, you don't necessarily have that time. But but if you are not in the middle of an operation. I think it's worth investing into, you know, listening uh, a little more. A little bit more about that, you know, touching on the enablers for, for that kind of culture change and mm -hmm. flattening a little bit of the hierarchy. Um, what do you think would be the role of non-commissioned members? Um, because so far we've had conversations and, and I'm guilty of that too, 
uh, of being very officer centric, but but we know that non-commissioned members are big part of that change and a big part of enabling that culture change from the bottom up, as you suggest. Well, this is um, that's a great question. Uh, first off, we need to remind ourselves collectively that uh, when you start a military career, the one individuals that are training you are the senior NCO. Uh, personally, I've always said that I am who I am right now because of the training that I got uh, from some master corporals and sergeant and warrant officers like 35 years ago. The reality is that a lot of our culture is driven by the senior NCO Corps through the training. They are the one transforming you from being a civilian into a soldier. Soldier or you know, second lieutenant doesn't matter to me. At the end of the day, they are like, I would say, the spine of our training system. So you, you may have the perception that culture is driven top down and, and absolutely we the senior officers and, and you know the service chiefs are the one who are talking about it. Uh, we're gonna have an organization like CPCC, who's gonna be delivering you know, um, the doctrinal foundation of where we wanna go as an institution. But, but as we do so with CPCC, all of that is informed by multiple engagement. The people shall not you know, think that uh, we are planning and developing everything out of you know, uh, the fourth floor of a building in Ottawa. Um, we need to engage, we need to travel, we need to talk to the people wherever they are. And this is exactly what we do. Uh, so that the solution that is being designed in Ottawa is as grounded you know, on, on the floor as possible. If you do not do so, I mean, it's, it's not gonna materialize. There's gonna be pushback. The, the, the people are not gonna be integrating you know, these changes that you are trying to implement. So the people need to recognize themselves. They need to be involved you know, into the discussion. And, and this is exactly what we're trying to do by having you know, focused discussion. You know, group talking to one another, sharing their perspective and so on and so forth. So uh, yes, uh, the senior leadership often are the talking head of it, but you know it's it's something that basically we are building uh, in in close proximity, if I can say so, uh, with with our senior NCOs who are really living you know uh, in every armory's floor. I would like to conclude this discussion with integrating the war in Ukraine into the fold. Um, because, you know, like the conflict that has been happening since February of 2022 has brought a lot of questions for the future of the army in across Western countries, but also in Canada. So, so what are some of the personnel related issues that you have learned from the war in Ukraine and that you're like thinking of implementing now that the Canadian army is thinking about potentially tackling such a similar land-based conflict? Yeah. Ukraine is uh, the one thing on which all of us uh, should be fixated right now. And, and I would offer to you that we are spending a lot of time talking about it. And actually, I'm, I'm going to be heading to Europe, you know, tomorrow, where we are going to have, you know, some uh, discussion uh, with uh, all of these uh, European colleagues who are army commander like me. Ukraine, uh, the Ukrainian conflict, the Russian invasion, as uh, you know, clearly illustrated that morale, courage still matters. Um, you know, as society, you need to have institution, right? You need to have some glue that will be keeping the whole thing, you know, together. And uh, it's crystal clear in this case that uh, the Russian aggression has galvanized, you know, the Ukrainian population around what is it to be a Ukrainian? What is it to be an independent country? And uh, that, I guess, the, the courage 
shown, you know, by these men and women in Ukraine is, uh, is extremely inspiring. Even if you don't have the same amount of equipment, even if you are only a certain percentage of, of your opponent forces, if you have, you know, the courage, you have the will, and you have the moral high ground, and you are willing to defend your homeland, you can, you know, you can be a real challenge for the aggressor. And this is exactly what's going on right now. So you have people who not so long ago were citizens, sometimes knew very little about, you know, the military business, and they are now fighting with lots of courage. And uh, so I guess it, it showcase it shows the point that it's not only about equipment. It's first and foremost about people. And by the way, history is filled with example where, you know, uh, uh, the smaller country, the smaller nation ended up prevailing. There's a lot of things, you know, in our society who can be uh, force multiplier. And one of the things that we have helped the Ukrainian with, I would offer to you, is our military philosophy. And what I'm going to be referring to is basically the concept of mission command. Mission command has been the driving force of Western armies, I would offer to you, for probably the last 34, 35 years. What is it? It's basically a philosophy where you delegate down to the lowest level the authority to do things. You present your young men and your young women with a desired end state. This is what I would like to do. This is what I would like to achieve. And then you simply let them unleash, you know, their ingeniosity. We have been training the Ukrainians on their hub unifier with that concept now for many, many, many years. And it starts paying dividend. And I would offer to you colleagues that this is why, has the, because the Russians are still caught with that monolithic you know, structure where the generals decide everything. So on the battlefield, waiting for orders to come down to them, top down, and as they are waiting for direction to come, they were being ambushed by the Ukrainian forces. And this is why, colleagues, I would offer to you, uh, during the march, the Russian march to Kiev, they ended up getting that bloody nose. All of these columns on the highways, on the road, heading towards, you know, Kiev, as soon as you saw ambushes, as soon as you saw basically these logistical lines being engaged, attacked by small Ukrainian teams with very few vehicles, but a lot of portable, you know, weaponry, they ended up being basically paralyzed, waiting for direction to come while the Ukrainians knew exactly what they needed, you know, to, to achieve. So I guess, the point I'm trying to make here is that military doctrine does matter. And when you are living in a free country, when you're living in a democracy, when you're living in, in a place where you can express yourself, you are way much more inclined to show that type of, you know, mission command type of approach to things. Uh, when you are living uh, under an authoritarian regime, where all the, cut, the, all the shots are being called you know, from the Kremlin, well, this is what you get. You get a system that is way too monolithic, a system that doesn't have any agility, and that makes you very vulnerable. I'm not saying that the Russians are not learning. They do, they do learn. You know, they're a human being. We gotta be you know, respectful of their ability to learn. But I would offer to you that our C2 philosophy does make a difference. So yes, a fascinating uh, conflict. It's a sad conflict. It's a human tragedy. But uh, you know, we have uh, the, the professional and, and the moral responsibility to learn out of it. And this is exactly what we are doing. 
the, the nature of warfare is now evolving and changing. The, the, the depth and the frontage of a division is no longer, you know, 15, 20 kilometers. It's like 60, 70 kilometers. Right, what you observe right now in Ukraine is, is basically that, that OODA loop, you know, that decision-making process being optimized, being accelerated. And uh, we, as an army, we as a nation, we as an alliance, we NATO need to learn out of that at every level, from a doctrinal perspective, but also from a C4ISR perspective, from a procurement perspective, and so on and so forth. So, uh, you know, uh, the conflict of tomorrow is unfolding right in front of us right now. And we need to take note, we need to adjust, we need to change the way we do business. And, you know, earlier colleagues, uh, I was talking about reducing maybe the length of, of training, you know, for the Canadian Army so that we can optimize, you know, the intake of people. I like to remind my, my colleagues at the Army all the time that this is exactly what we are doing right now in the UK. We Canadian soldiers are taking, you know, civilian Ukrainians, we're giving them five weeks of training and they are going to combat. So on the one hand, five weeks, on the other hand, you know, about 20 weeks, this is what we need as an army to start generating soldiers. I think collectively we need to reflect on that. General Paul, thank you so much for your insights. Uh, fascinating conversation. Merci beaucoup. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you so much. Real pleasure to have a discussion with you colleagues and, and hopefully we'll have the, the opportunity to continue that dialogue over the next few weeks and months. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Defensive Constructed. You can find all other episodes from the CGAI Podcast Network on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. If you like what we do, think of donating at cgai.ca/support. This episode of Defense Constructed was brought to you by our team in Ottawa. And my thanks go to Dave Perry for supporting the series and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I am Charlotte Duval-Antoine. Thanks for joining us today on Defense Constructed. <laughs>